Let's now open God's word together to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, and we'll read the verses 1 through 9 in connection with the sermon text, which is from the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll read about Paul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So far, the reading from Acts. Let's now turn to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, and we will read verses 1 through 5. Once again, this is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So far, the reading of God's word. May God bless that reading as well as the proclamation of his word based on this passage of scripture this morning. Following the sermon and in response to it, we will sing together from Psalm 85, stanza 3. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, reading the the text for this morning's sermon, there were some words in that text that were very familiar to you. In fact, they were words that we had already heard once in this worship service. In fact, you've heard these words pretty much every week since you first started attending worship services. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's greeting, his opening of his letter is very familiar. But we'll see that this greeting is much more than just a formality. It's much more than just a regular pattern that the Apostle Paul follows. Because right from the very first words of this letter, Paul is laying the foundation for what's coming, for what's ahead. And what's ahead is a passionate, heartfelt letter. It's a letter that was written out of a very deep concern for the people who were going to receive it. A letter that was also going to be very challenging for the first people to hear it being read. And despite the very different context in which we live, it's going to be a message that will challenge us as well. Paul is writing to the Galatians, Christians in the Roman province of Galatia. 
There were people who had been converted from paganism to become followers of Jesus Christ during the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. Now we can read about that journey in Acts 13 and 14. And we can read there how the gospel was received in the cities of Antioch and in Pisidia, Lystra, Derbe, and Iconium. Now that journey was a very difficult and dangerous one for Paul and Barnabas, not just because of the natural dangers of travel in the ancient world, which were bad enough, but even more so because of the constant and violent opposition that the evangelists faced repeatedly, and most especially from their fellow Jews. In Antioch, in Acts 13, verse 50, we read, that the Jews incited devout women, the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Then in Acts 14, we read that the unbelieving Jews in Iconium stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And then an attempt was made to mistreat and to stone Paul and Barnabas, but they fled. But they didn't just flee, they fled and they continued to preach the gospel. Then later on in Acts 14, the unbelieving Jews from Antioch and Iconium, they went so far as to follow the evangelists to Lystra. And there they actually stoned Paul. They dragged him out of the city and they left him for dead. But by the grace of God, Paul recovered and he continued on to the city of Derbe and there they made many disciples. We read in Acts 14, verse 21. So clearly, obviously, to say that this missionary journey was no walk in the park is is an understatement. Paul and Barnabas had put their lives on the line for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Lord blessed their work immensely. When the Gentiles heard the gospel message, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. We read that in Acts 13, verses 48 and 49. So it was to these Gentiles, these Gentiles who had heard and who had gladly received the good news of Jesus Christ, they had received it with such enthusiasm, it was to them that Paul writes this letter. And it was going to be A difficult letter. But here, in these opening verses of the letter to the Galatians, we see the Apostle Paul laying the foundation for his passionate defense of his gospel message. And we'll we'll hear three points. First of all, the source of that gospel message. Secondly, the message itself or the content of that message. And thirdly, the purpose of that message. Why it was being proclaimed. So first of all, the source of the gospel message. Now Paul begins by introducing himself as an apostle. And an apostle is one who has been sent. So that title, apostle, has a very specific meaning because it's not applicable to just anyone. Apostles were men, specifically, who had been eyewitnesses to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, who had been called and taught by him personally. And they were sent by him to proclaim the kingdom of of God, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of Jesus Christ. So right away, that means something important because the office of apostle 
or the title apostle was not just a title, something that a man could simply just take upon himself and say, well, now I'm an apostle and I'm going to put it on my business card. I am apostle so-and-so. The word itself implies that someone else is doing the sending. Now, you don't send yourself. You don't give yourself the title. But Paul goes on to clarify that the calling that he had received hadn't come about by any merely human means. He had been called directly and personally through a personal account with, or encounter with the risen Savior. On the road to Damascus, he was headed there en route to persecute Jesus Christ himself by persecuting his people. The Lord Jesus had appeared to him. And that experience had turned his world upside down. But here, in Paul's opening words, the focus is on the source of his calling. So the source is the risen Lord himself. Now for the purposes of this letter, that was a foundational fact. Because it meant that he wasn't just speaking on his own authority. He was not just some kind of self-appointed prophet or wise man. He was sent by God. Now, throughout this letter, Paul is going to be arguing against a group of people that had been leading the flock of Christ in Galatia astray. Now, judging by what Paul says, it appears that some of those enemies of the gospel were calling Paul's credentials into question. But Paul expects his readers to listen to what he has to say, to take what he has to say seriously. But that expectation is not based on arrogance. What a great man I am. You have to listen to me. It's not based on the idea that he knows better than these Galatians do. It's not based on some kind of inflated sense of self-importance. It's based on his calling. And that calling came directly from God the Father through the person of his Son. So Paul's ministry, Paul's message, it meant something. And it meant something not because Paul meant something. His message had authority. It meant something because it came, his call came from God himself. But in verse 2, Paul adds another qualification, and that qualification serves not as the basis for his authority, but as a support to it. So he says he was called directly and personally by the Lord Jesus Christ, but he makes it clear that he wasn't just some kind of lone wolf working on his own, making grandiose claims about himself. Because in verse 2, he includes all of the brothers that are with me, along with himself as those who are communicating this message to the brothers and sisters in Galatia. So, in other words, Paul's message is not his message alone. He's also speaking on behalf of the brothers who are with him. And that means that they were united. They were united in purpose. They were united in the source of the message. They were united in the content of the message. Paul wasn't preaching some kind of novelty. He wasn't preaching something, a message that no one had ever heard or proclaimed before. The message that he had to proclaim was being proclaimed in a context, and in the, that context is the context of the communion of saints. Now, brothers and sisters, 
Paul was about to launch into a message that would be very difficult, very painful for the Galatians to hear and to accept. He wasn't going to pull any punches in this letter. He was going to challenge the Galatians. And he was going to do that in a way that we, as Canadian Christians living in the 21st century, will find, or would find, if it was the first time we were reading this book, we would find it shocking. Because we'd find it very harsh, very direct, very difficult, very intolerant, actually. And so Paul needed to make sure right from the very beginning that the Galatians remembered exactly who was writing and why what he had to say should be taken seriously. Paul was speaking as a messenger of God. He was delivering a message that had been confirmed by the appearance, by its acceptance rather, by God's people, by the brothers who were with him. Now there are no apostles today. But we have the apostolic witness to God's word, in God's word. We have the message of truth that we are called to proclaim to a world that doesn't, by nature, want to accept it. Now, as preachers, especially, and also as God's people who are called to share this message to the world around us, as we all are called to do, the source of that message and the context in which we proclaim that message means that we can, and not only can, but we must proclaim this message boldly and without compromise. Now, in our culture, we're immersed in our culture, so sometimes it's hard for us to see and understand the impact that our culture has on us. But in our culture, think about this. We have a tendency to excuse ourselves when we make bold claims. Or we even avoid making bold claims, definite claims altogether in order to not offend anyone. And so we'll often begin, and you'll hear this many times, we'll often begin a sentence by saying something that we think might be controversial. We'll say, well, this is just what I believe. Or this is just my opinion, but... Or... Don't you think that perhaps it might be better to think about things this way? Now, it comes across as humble. And a lot of Christians do this, including a lot of well-known evangelical leaders do this. They've gathered large followings, and their style is often imitated. Because it seems like if we speak like that, that's an effective way of reaching the postmodern audience people who don't believe that absolute truth exists. But brothers and sisters, it's a false humility. It's a false humility that develops out of forgetting something very important. And that is forgetting that the message that we proclaim, the message that we are called to proclaim, the message that we are called to live and speak about is not our message. It's not our own opinion. It's not something that we've developed ourselves. It's not based on our own ideas, but it comes from God himself. So it's God's message, and it's not ours. And that also means that when we hear the word being faithfully proclaimed, when we hear it being proclaimed on the basis of the apostolic witness, when we hear it proclaimed in the community of God's people, that means that it's not just a message that we can choose to take or leave 
or that we can reject because we don't like the person who's proclaiming it or because we don't really care for what we're hearing. It's not the person who's proclaiming the message that makes the difference. It's the source of that message, where that message comes from. And the source of the message is God Himself, and that means that it carries God's authority. Now, in a way, this is the second point, the message itself, Paul's listing of his credentials in this opening sentence is already a part of the proclamation of the gospel message. It's a central part, really, the message that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. The core message of the gospel is the message of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same message that the Apostle Paul proclaimed everywhere on his missionary journeys. The message that he even himself said was a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So in his personal greeting, the Apostle Paul reveals the difference that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ makes for the life of a believer. Paul can give this greeting on behalf of the Lord. He can say, grace to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished in His death and resurrection. Grace is God's undeserved favor. We deserve nothing from God. In fact, if we deserve anything at all, we deserve the opposite of what we receive. We deserve to face His wrath. But in Christ, He pours out His grace upon us. He gives us everything that we don't deserve and nothing that we do deserve. He gives us hope. He gives us meaning in this life. He gives us salvation. He gives us every blessing. And He gives us every joy that salvation brings. And He offers us peace. He offers us grace and peace. And that's true, lasting peace. In Christ, we have peace, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, which guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, as Paul writes in Philippians 4. And that peace is first and foremost peace with God. That means that we're no longer His enemies. We're no longer objects, rightful objects of His divine wrath. We're no longer separated from Him by that wall of sin. We don't have to run and hide like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden when when the peace was destroyed in the fall into sin. So we can rest, we can experience a genuine peace, peace with God in Christ. So grace and peace. But that peace also includes more because we also have peace with each other. We can enjoy and really enjoy the profound beauty and the depth of human relationships, relationships that are significant, that are meaningful, that are real. And they're all of these things because they are based in the reality of the gospel. We can have peace with people who normally in this life we would probably have nothing to do with, people who are very different from us, people who come from different backgrounds, people who come from cultures that are very different than ours. We can have peace In our marriages, we can have peace in our families. We can have peace in the church community, which is different, very different from all of the counterfeits that the world offers. It's different from the vain attempts at peace 
that the world tries to achieve without God, which will only end in disaster. It's real peace. And it's real peace because it's peace on a personal level that flows from the peace that we have with God in Jesus Christ. So we have grace and we have peace. Peace with God, peace with ourselves, peace with others, and finally peace within ourselves. So we're set free. We're set free from the heavy burden of anxiety and angst that plague humanity. Again, the world in this area offers its counterfeits, whether they're pharmacological or whether they're psychological or whether they're spiritual between quotation marks or whether they're just plain materialistic. The world has its own way of offering what looks like inner peace on the surface. But real personal peace can only come through God the Father and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that grace and peace, it comes to us as the result of the self-sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave himself for, for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now this is like the perfect summary of Paul's gospel, the nature of Paul's gospel, and it's absolutely essential to the argument that he's going to make in this letter. The Galatians were being led back into the types and the shadows of the Old Covenant, and they were being led by false teachers. And because of that, they were putting themselves in grave danger. In doing that, they were rejecting the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. They were not entering the new age that had been inaugurated through the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul says this present age is evil. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he describes the spiritual war, the spiritual battle in which we as believers are engaged. And he says we, rest, we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, which is the equivalent of the present evil age. And so this present evil age is characterized by darkness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, he makes a contrast between the wisdom that comes from God and the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age, which are doomed to pass away. And so while Paul here isn't getting into the heart of his argument yet, he's already laying the foundation of his argument. So rejection of his gospel message, that message that he was called to proclaim by the Lord Jesus himself, that gospel that proclaims grace and peace and liberation from this present evil age. It means returning to the darkness of this evil age. It means returning to the supposed wisdom of this age, which is doomed to pass away together with all of its rulers. And since we know where Paul is going in this letter, we know the issues that he's going to address, we know how he's going to take on the false teachers and their destructive teachings, we can also see how the final phrase of Paul's introduction can be read as just another hammer blow against those who are leading the Galatians astray. Because the ultimate purpose of the gospel, what is it? 
The ultimate purpose of the gospel is God's glory. So that's important because we don't proclaim the gospel in order to make people happy. We don't proclaim the gospel in order to make them feel better. We don't proclaim the gospel to help people to live a better life. We don't proclaim the gospel to help them to deal with their felt needs. And ultimately, the end goal of the proclamation of the gospel cannot even be said to be limited to the salvation of people's souls. The end, the goal of what we're doing is the glory of God. And so what should compel us to preach the gospel? It's the love of God that should compel us to preach the gospel. When we know, as we do know, that He is not receiving the honor and the worship and the glory and the service that He deserves, we should be motivated to get out there and preach the good news. When we see the world in darkness giving glory to anything and everything apart from the Creator who alone deserves the glory, worshiping and serving the creature instead of the Creator, it should lead us, brothers and sisters, to desire nothing more than to wake people up to reality that the glory belongs to God and that we were all created, the world itself was created to glorify Him forever and ever. That is why we're here. And when the gospel message is distorted as it was being distorted by the men who were leading the Galatians astray, who had come to Galatia to preach a false gospel, that distortion is serious, and it's so serious, not just because it leads people astray, not just because, to put it bluntly, it leads people to hell, because it leads them to their ultimate destruction, but most importantly, because it will inevitably detract from God's glory. Distortions of the gospel will always put the focus in the wrong place. Our natural tendency is to focus on ourselves. It's to focus on what we need to do, on what we can accomplish. False religion will always be human-centered religion. It'll be religion that finds the, the means of salvation within human beings. And in the end, they will, that false religion will inevitably lead to the glorification of human beings. So when it comes right down to it, this was the Apostle Paul's purpose in writing this letter. It was to bring glory to God. That was the purpose really behind everything that he did. And at the heart of the gospel message is the cross of Jesus Christ. The Father sent Him. He gave Himself willingly for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. So now having been delivered, brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, let us glorify Him. Paul's letter to the Galatians shows us how we can do that. Paul glorified God by his passionate defense of his gospel message, the full message of the gospel, and his uncompromising attitude toward anything that might detract from God's glory. And so we glorify God. How? We glorify God not just by singing pleasant and uplifting songs, not just by being what the world considers to be nice people, not just by living a fine, upstanding, moral life that's admired by others. We don't 
and must not use the world's standards to judge our own actions and to measure our own actions or the actions of others. We must not allow the world to define for us what our purpose should be or how and why we should live a Christian life. Unfortunately, we see a lot of that happening. A lot of that kind of thinking, directing Christians in their choices about how to live, basing those choices on what the world thinks and not on what the Word says. But the, because the world doesn't know anything about the central aspect of God's message, about what our actual purpose in this life is. And so we need to be shaped, and we need to be shaped not by our culture, but we need to be shaped by God's Word and what it has to tell us about the ultimate purpose of all things, which is the glory of God Himself. So we glorify God, and we do that by proclaiming in word and in deed the message of the gospel. That message that comes from God Himself, that message that centers on the cross of Christ and on the grace and the peace that come to us by means of the cross and only by means of the cross, which has as its purpose the praise and the worship and the glorification of the one who deserves it, our God and our Father we glorify God by defending the absolute truth of that gospel message in the face of whatever attacks and from wherever those attacks may come, whatever distortions, by confidently standing on the firm foundation of the apostolic revelation which we have received and which God has preserved for us. We glorify God by refusing steadfastly to compromise on any aspect of that message of the gospel for whatever purpose, regardless of what people might think or say or do to us or say about us because of it. Because, brothers and sisters, the glory belongs to Him forever and ever. Amen.